of talking about what's going on in like the world as well as something's like, happened in the world another episode of Hidden Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Will Blasingham. And I'm your co-host, John Blasingham. <laughs> um, yeah, so what's gone on in the world? When was our last podcast? So our, lot, our last podcast was recorded either late December or early January of, so late December 2019 or early January 2020. Uh, and then I don't think it was posted until May of uh-huh. 2020. Yeah. But, I mean, there's one, at least one big thing that's gone on in the world yeah. since our yeah. last podcast. Yeah. Which is... Uh, I got a girlfriend. That <laughs> 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 uh, wasn't what I was thinking. But... Yeah, I know. Um, COVID. Yeah, COVID. So COVID happened. Uh, at least it hit us in Texas around March of 2020. Uh-huh. Um, so we didn't really have that on our radar before recording this podcast uh, back in 2019. Um, but that's something that has happened in the world, mm-hmm. and it's something that has hopefully informed you know some lessons that we've learned over the past uh, two years or so, which um, you know we'll get a chance to talk about today. So do you want to tell everyone kind of what the point of this podcast is? Yeah. So this is the top 10 things we've learned since we last did a podcast. Yes. So we each have five, and we're going to start and then switch off between the two. Yep. Um, yeah. So what about personal developments, John? Uh, personal developments, let's see. Biggest thing for me was probably I moved to Hawaii um, back in like kind of during the middle of COVID in 2020. So I moved out there in late April of 2020. Um, Let's see, I started a master's program at a school called Pacific Rim Christian University. I started out wanting to get a master's degree in biblical languages, um, but that changed and ended up with me uh, pursuing a master's degree in Christian studies, which is more of a broad focused or wide wide spectrum of theological studies Uh, so I'm in the middle of that right now Um, and what else I don't know that anything else big has really happened in my life of course something big has happened in your life apparently Um, yeah I graduated twice that's one thing okay I graduated Uh, with my undergrad in mechanical engineering from Arkansas in 2020. And then I finished my MBA the following year and graduated in 2021. Um, I started dating Kyla in the summer of 2020. Okay. So we've been dating for like a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, And I started full-time working at Texas Instruments. Yeah. And supply chain. We're both in the in the real world then. I know. It's after such a long time. <laughs> I know. It's uh, underwhelming. Yeah. 
it takes a lot of time and it's kind of the same every it, day yeah it's just work now consumes my life yeah to be fair I like what I do but you know it's still like you have to do it yep yeah it's the necessity of earning a living in order to continue living mm-hmm. you have to pay to be alive yeah um all right so how about we get started do you want to start yeah i, I guess i can take this off <laughs> um so as we said we're going to go through 10 things that we learned collectively which means each of us is going to go through five things um and these are five things they don't have to be moral in nature they don't have to be uh they're just five things that we've learned they can be scientific they can be um epistemological epistemological philosophical (laughs) it can be a wide array of things um but we're just trying to draw out the biggest the biggest items that we've learned Mm -hmm. so i'll kick it off with my first one um my first one is a lesson that i've learned probably most severely over the past six months or so it's a lesson that i learned throughout the course of my uh studies at pacrim it's a lesson that i've learned um throughout the course of i guess life in general and it's a lesson that i've learned throughout the course of work um and so i'll I'll just kick it off with the title is the title yes the title of this uh, lesson is what does the text say and so just to give you a brief overview um, this is coming from a phrase that one of my professors at Pacific Rim Christian University really likes to say uh, kind of in response to some of our assignments that we've given him um, he's he was my hermeneutics professor which if you don't know anything about hermeneutics hermeneutics is uh, interpretive studies specifically of the Bible um, well at least in a theological context it is so one of the things that we had to do for hermeneutics is we had to examine certain passages of the Bible um, one of them I think was passage in Ephesians 1 and what he wanted us to do was to observe things in the text and that's all we were supposed to be doing at the time Um, the phases of hermeneutics are observation interpretation application but at this time we were only learning to do observation and naturally um, it was easy for some of us to allow the practice of observation to bleed in to the practice of interpretation mm-hmm. so it would be like trying to observe what the text says say in Ephesians 1 um, but at the same time when you're making your observation statement and saying this is what it says allowing some interpretive flavor so your your own interpretive understanding of what the text says to bleed into your observation statement so that could be you know if if say in one of the gospels jesus is saying uh 
but I say to you, so and so and so, what you know the the professor wanted us to do was to say Jesus says to his disciples X or so and so. What my tendency was was to say Jesus speaks with authority to his disciples. Maybe add on to the end of that, and he says X so and so. Whenever we stepped outside the bounds of this practice, the professor would always ask us, what does the text say? And that got drilled into our heads. What does the text say? Only look at what the text says, right? Yeah. Don't go beyond what the text says. Don't apply your interpretive perspective to the text too early. Just look at what it says, right? And so that's kind of where this is coming from, but I've, I've learned that this lesson applies not just in hermeneutics, but in a wide array of things in life. So what I understand this specific lesson being is, you know, because it's not just what does the text say, but in any given situation in which you're called to examine evidence and mm -hmm. come up with a theory that mm -hmm. explains the evidence, the first thing that you need to do is take an unbiased or as close as you can get to an unbiased approach of the evidence that lays at hand. So whether that's the Bible and a specific passage and asking what does the text say, or whether it's a, maybe you're a detective and it's a crime scene and you have all the evidence at hand, don't formulate the theory too soon. Just look at the evidence. And so this, I think, hit home to me pretty hard uh, through something that I heard a guy named uh, Jocko Willink. Will, do you, do you want to explain who Jocko is? Jocko Willink? He was a former Navy SEAL, and he's a podcast, and he kind of talks like this. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's a pretty hardcore guy. Um, and sometimes when he's saying something serious, and then he'll make a joke, but he'll use this tone, and so you can't tell it's a joke. <laughs> Until it registers. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I've i listened to him a little bit, not too much, but just a little bit over the course of the past few months. And I kind of came across something on YouTube that he was talking about with regard to like relationships. So he was saying that a lot of people he knew, or at least like a lot of Navy SEALs, got ahead of themselves when it comes to the relationships that they want to be in, particularly because they look beyond what the evidence says. So they don't look at what the evidence, or I guess maybe a good word here is not evidence, but signals. So what are the signals that someone is putting out for you? And he said that a lot of people he knew take the signals that they have, which is that, okay, there's a cute girl and she was nice to me. And they take that and they run with it way too far, right? So they, you know, you start building on that and you start, in your own mind, you start constructing the ideal woman or in your own mind, you start constructing the ideal future that you could have with her. And pretty soon, you know, you mentally are five miles beyond what the situation actually is realistically. And that came home to me because I, I, I think that's something that I, have a tendency to do, particularly with relationships, is I like to stretch something way too far instead of looking right at the evidence. Um, and so what I've learned 
you know, through this particular life lesson is when you're studying something academically or maybe investigatively, just look at what the text says. Look at what the evidence says. Try to remove whatever bias you can, um, even if you can't 100% remove all bias. But just focus on observation. And then with regard to life advice, say relationship-wise, try to remove whatever bias you can. Try to put whatever emotions you have on hold, I guess. And just look at what the signals are. And just try to try to come up with a theory of what's going on. Does she like you? Does she not like you? Is there, are there mixed feelings based on what the signals are? Right? Um, and that, I would say, the difficulty consequently resides not in observation but in interpretation. So the difficulty comes in formulating a theory to explain the evidence mm. rather than observing the evidence itself. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of, I guess you could take this as the opposite way of saying, what does the text say? It's don't go beyond what the evidence allows you to. So if the evidence can only, like if, if it's circumstantial, you're not allowed to make any conclusions that are beyond circumstantial. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, try to explain that in different words. So, like in, in hermeneutics or something, and I haven't taken a hermeneutics class, but I've been studying Matthew for the past several months in BSF. And, you know, you're looking at a chapter a week. And in discussion groups, a lot of people, when they read something that Jesus says, take what they know about who Jesus is from later on in his ministry yeah. and reapply that to what he says. Okay. And I think the way you should go about it is, well, what does the text say where I am right now? Yeah. Not what will the text say, but that way you can get, well, how would the people who are hearing this right now understand what he's saying it's like it's trying to get your mind into that reading it for the first time uh -huh. mindset again yeah and i think if that's the case you pick up on a lot of things of what jesus isn't saying and that uh, i wouldn't say eliminate some interpretations but all of a sudden you see his ministry in a new light um, I'm trying to come up with some examples. I, I mm. hadn't thought about this, but um, so it's, I mean, what you're talking about specifically refers to narrative, right? Because you're not going to take something that's written in one of the epistles and and say, you know, we need to read this circumstantially like the epistles like you can pretty much pick up the argument but it's not like the argument hinges on certain events it's not chronological is what you're it's saying not yeah that's that's i don't know about that actually um 
because I think I think certain books, you know, were written before other books in the epistles. And the epistles written, what, like, 50s, 60s? Well, I mean, Galatians is probably the earliest. late 40s, 80s. And the destruction of the temple didn't happen until 70. Okay, so what's your point? My point is I think that changes how... You can, I think, I think the context of that changes what people are talking about at the time. Or for example, okay. like, I guess it's more of a context of like what's going on yeah, in yeah. this church I, at this I, time. I understand that. But I'm, when you're, when you're talking about like reading something circumstantially, like, like re, you're going to read the gospel narratives when you try to apply that first first time reading mindset to the narr- to something narrative mm-hmm. it's going to be different than if you're reading something like that's a logical you know premise based argument x x therefore y yeah no, that makes sense okay just i don't know if this kind of goes to it but Another way of what does the text say is what does the text around the text that you're looking at say? Okay. And I think we oftentimes take that out of context. Like when Paul says, work as if you're working for the Lord. I think he says it in two times in different books. Both times he's talking to slaves. Okay. So does that apply to us? Huh. Well, here's another hermeneutical obstacle you're going to have to jump jump over if you're going to apply that to us is historical cultural context. Slaves back then, you know, maybe mean something different in today's world. But I do think you can probably translate the concept of slave into today's world. And, you know, you might be able to come up with just an employee. So employees are slaves. In some sense. I mean, then what about the other people in the context of who he's talking about? He says husbands and wives and children and then slaves. So does that... You can say that wage labor is comparable to biblical slavery, but I am not comfortable with that. Okay. Okay, yeah. I mean, this probably requires more research. I mean, I have a, like, that's all I'm saying. I just, I'm not, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's something that, like, what does the text say? You know? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to read things in their immediate context as well as in their historical, cultural context. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, yeah, did you have any other things you want to draw out based on my first one? 
Um, if not, we can just press on to yours. I think I'm going to say one that'll kind of, you know, dovetail nicely with that. Okay, cool. Do you want to move on to yours then? All right. All right. Will, bring us your first lesson learned over the past two years. Um, so when you were giving years before the podcast, you used them in a different order. So I'm going to do the same. Okay. So this first one is the Bible is a fractal. Explain. Do you know what a fractal is? No, I don't think so. Um, a fractal is a geometric figure that is what they call self-affine, like self-affinity. Not necessarily self-similar, but self-similar is a good enough representation. So that means that at different scales, it resembles kind of the larger scale or the smaller scale. So, for example, a tree is kind of a fractal. Okay. Branches look like smaller trees, and the branches coming off of those look like smaller trees themselves. Okay. Um, Can you explain with another metaphor? Because I'm still having trouble wrapping my mind around this. Um, yeah. Gothic architecture is a fractal. Okay. These big spires have little spires on them, and those little spires have little spires on them. Okay. And so... A lot of nature is fractal. Um, you can also say that that's things that are very self-similar, but you can also have like a coastline. If you zoom in, it looks jagged. But if you zoom in even more, it still looks jagged. And if you zoom out, it looks jagged. Okay. Whereas something that's like a curve, even if like it does look jagged, if you zoom in, you can see it's smooth. Like a, and that's a not a fractal. That's not a fractal okay. because you zoom in and it smooths out. Okay. And it's not self-similar as you zoom in. Yeah, okay. it just smooths. Gotcha. So here, I'm also going to um, just show, show you a picture of a fractal. A snowflake is a fractal with the little things coming off the side. They have little tiny little specks oh, okay. coming off their okay. sides. So these kind of things are fractals. Like uh, the Pascal's Triangle. Where each triangle. triangle has smaller little triangles inside of it. Okay. Um, so that that's kind of what a fractal is. And you can get really into into the weeds about those. Um, but when I say the Bible is a fractal, what I'm saying is that the structure of the Bible is self-similar at different scales of what you look at. Okay. So the larger literary structure of, let's say, a book will mirror the content of that book, which will mirror maybe a story in the book, which will mirror some small detail. Okay. So... Can you, do you have any examples? I do. Um, think of the numbers in the Bible. Okay. Not the book, the actual numbers. There's six days of creation, and on the seventh day, God rests. Okay. Well, there are seven Jewish feasts in a year, depending on how you count, in one year. 
which is mirroring. And on those seven days, you rest. So it's mirroring the seventh rest. And every seven years, you, I think, let slaves go free. You let the land rest. Okay. And then every seven, seven years, or 49 years, you okay. have a year of jubilee. Yes. And you also have seven and days of creation sprinkled throughout the rest, even in Jesus' memory, ministry. He was in the grave on the seventh day resting or whatever okay and he rose again on the first day of new creation okay you can see that pattern throughout all of the bible and you can see there's so many patterns like this specifically creation is a big one that is throughout the entire bible but so is something like jesus jesus's ministry he came down to earth he taught and lived life. He was killed, died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. Okay. So he comes down into death, rises up, back into ascension. Okay. And so the structure of the book of Matthew mirrors his ministry. Right. In that the structure of the book of Matthew is based on five big teaching blocks, each of which ends with the phrase, and when Jesus had finished saying these things. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is when he sends out his 12 disciples into the land to teach to, or to minister to the house of Israel. Okay. The third one is when he first starts speaking in parables. Okay. The fourth one, I don't remember the fourth, I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. But the fifth one is the Olivet Discourse, where yeah. he says on the Mount of Olives. Okay. So there's five teaching blocks. Yep. Yeah. And the location of each of his teachings expresses his ministry. The first one is on a mountain okay. where he gives it. The second one is on just normal land. The third one, he is giving it while sitting in a boat on the water. And water representing death, like as in baptism. Okay. The fourth one is on land and the fifth one is on a mountain. Okay. So he goes from high down all the way to death in the water back up all the way towards ascension okay Minist mirroring his own ministry all right but also in the five books that is also something that's sprinkled out all of the bible like there are five books of moses there are five books of the books of psalms okay. and jesus connects or i guess matthew writing it connects jesus's ministry to the way that the flow of those books happen as well so for example at the very middle of the very middle of jesus's third teaching block where he starts speaking of parables he quotes psalm 78 which is the very middle of the third book of psalms so he connects the middle of this to the middle of that and if you look really closely and you ask the right questions, you can connect it to the very middle of the book of Leviticus, <laughs> which is the center of the book of Leviticus. No, the, the Torah. Or, it's the center yeah. of the Torah. And he connects it to the center of Leviticus, which is the center of the Torah. Okay. Do you know what is at the center of Leviticus? 
Day of Atonement. It is the Day of Atonement. And so you can see that there's these kind of patterns throughout all of the Bible. And when you start exploring... um, Sorry, I don't know what just happened. Um, Yeah, so I'll actually get into the exploration of that in a different one. But uh, what do you think? What do you? What kind of questions or anything? Uh, So the Bible is a fractal. Do you see that anywhere beyond the examples that you've? already given us because mm-hmm. it's it, to me I think there's a difference between fractal and self-similarity and just repeated patterns throughout the Bible well the fractal nature comes in the fact that those patterns are repeated on the structure of how things laid out and on the content of what they're laid out in and the very minute details of inside those narratives that are the content. So here's another example. Okay. So the way our Old Testament is structured isn't how the Hebrew Bible is structured. The Hebrew Bible is structured in three parts. You have the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And the Nevi'im means the prophets. And those, they have the three major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel followed by the 12, which is just one scroll of the 12 minor prophets. Yeah. Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Yeah. So you have three followed by 12. Do you see that structure anywhere? Three followed by 12? Three followed by 12. The disciples? Uh, yeah, you can do that. You can have kind of like the trinity following and then followed by the disciples but you also have the patriarchs were three followed by 12 tribes of israel okay huh are you so what makes you so sure that you're not just observing things and making connections that don't actually that aren't intended to exist i think there are two two answers to that one is does the connection that I'm making match on several different levels of the structure? Does it fit the content of the Bible, the form of the Bible, and the like minutia? And so if it fits all of that, I think you can say that it's intended to exist. Because I think the Bible is you know, the inspired word God. It is the word of God. And if you truly believe that, you have to say that it is infinitely complex. Okay. And so if you're saying, oh, you're just making connections that aren't there, that's like saying, oh, it's just purely of human origin. No human could make all of those levels of detail. No, I understand. I understand that. Okay. I've just noticed within myself 
I think over the past this you know past two years or so a desire to see more connections in the Bible than may actually exist so I want there to be more profundity and I read profundity into things that maybe isn't there like and what um, you know for a while I think I was probably doing that in my reading of the book of Luke uh, reading profundity particularly into Luke 14 that probably wasn't there um, talking about Jesus' call to discipleship and trying to read like a, a picture of the gospel message into there and trying to make it fit my interpretation rather than asking myself what does the text say yeah and I think I don't think those are incompatible okay I think if you look at what the text says you'll notice things that stand out and the things that stand out if you remember that the Bible is a fractal the things that stand out are the keys to the connections with other parts of the Bible Hmm. Um. okay um that's interesting the other thing that I guess I'm wary of is making connections between different books particularly between New Testament books and Old Testament books when they aren't explicitly outlined within the text so like when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament book I think you have grounds to make a connection between the Old Testament book and that New Testament book. But I know generally, and this is particularly the case when you're doing word studies in the Bible, you want to look at how a specific word is used within the given text that you're looking at. And then you move on and say, okay, if there's no words used, if, if it's not used twice in that given text, how is it used in other books that that author might have penned. And if you can't find it there, then you expand the scope and you're like, okay, how is it used in the New Testament as a whole, if that word is in the New Testament? And then you expand the scope even further if it's not used there and say, okay, how is it used in the Bible as a whole? Which means like there's just concentric circles that you look at in order to make connections between the text. So there's a, I don't, there's a scope. I don't necessarily at. agree. That may be the case for word studies in particular, but I think, you know, if there's imagery or something, maybe not like a particular word, but it's drawing out certain connections that you can relate back to something that happens in the Old Testament. So to give an example of Luke, the story of the prodigal son. Yeah. I think he's making a connection to the story of Jacob and Esau meeting again. Okay. And I think I think everything that Jesus does and says is a continuation of the scriptures. And so I think it probably is in the Old Testament. Not just you can't make the connection. I'm saying you should make the connection. Like, let me take an example. The book of Job. 
Job is some guy that has awful things happen to him. He's all everything's going great. He goes basically to the point of death, and eventually at the end, he you know gets things better than even like he had it before. So back to his original state and a little better. And the whole point of the book is, well, what did Job do to deserve this? And as you read the book, there are two answers. One is, we'll never know. Only God knows. But two, if you're being really honest and you look and like what you think, the answer is nothing. Job didn't do anything to deserve this. And yet he suffered and his friends were blaming him and heaping accusations on him. Yet at the end, it was Job who prayed and interceded for his friends so that they wouldn't be destroyed. Yeah. So Job is like a Christ figure. Okay. And I think you can then make the other connection with, well, Job has these three friends, but then there's a fourth friend that just shows up out of nowhere, not mentioned at the beginning, just shows up out of nowhere and starts accusing the other friends and even accusing Job. Do you remember what that other fourth friend's name is? Elihu. What's the connection? Elihu is, means the exact same thing as Eliyah. Elijah. His name is my God is Yah, or my God is Yahu. It, it, he is an Elijah figure. Okay. And so then you can make the connection between Elijah, Elihu, and John the Baptist even. And so I'm thinking you can make these connections. You just have to... They have to fit on multiple levels. That's that's where it comes into being a fractal. So the larger structure can inform what the intent of what he's saying is. And I know you don't like it when I bring up chiasms. Because you oh, think, oh, I'm over, you're over-chiasticizing. But the structure of... The literary structure of what they're saying informs the interpretation. I agree. I definitely agree with that in chiasms. I just think sometimes chiasms aren't actually there. We want them to be there. And I think you should assume a literary structure, maybe not a chiastic literary structure, but assume a literary structure until proven otherwise. Assume there is a structure. It's not just free form, a stream of consciousness. It's the word of God. It's structured. I I have just maybe I've become so much more conservative in my hermeneutical endeavors over the course of the past year and a half than uh, than I guess you have. I would say, uh, yeah, probably. So how about we just put a pin in this one? And see if we take it out at any point throughout the rest of this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Or in, if we ever go back and start doing other more specific biblical passages, we'll see if this comes up. Okay. Alright. So I'll move on to my second one. <laughs> this is a good one. Um... So, 
Hmm. How do I want to introduce this one? This one is kind of it's kind of been my motto recently, going to work each day. Uh, and it's I think it's particularly applicable in times of difficulty and in times of I wish I could be doing other things. Um, and yeah, I'll just say the second one is called eat the piece of the pie that's on your plate. And I will explain where I got that from. So I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and Joe Rogan uh, was interviewing not Jocko Willink, but a different Navy SEAL. Um, and the Navy SEAL was talking about who makes it through basic underwater demolition training. So, BUDS. Who makes it through basic Navy SEAL training versus who doesn't? And he said that when he was going through BUDS, his mindset, especially during Hell Week, which is, as far as I understand, like, it's a week in which you're constantly doing things like strenuous or testing exercises. I, I think the name implies what it is. <laughs> but you don't sleep except for two hours, it sounds like, during the middle of the week. So when he was going through Hell Week, his mindset is, okay, don't try to digest this all at once. Don't focus on the last day right now. Just focus on the day that's in front of you. And more specifically than that, focus on the next six hours that's in front of you. Because every six hours, apparently, they have to feed you. So focus on getting to the next meal. And the way he explained that, and the way he explained, I guess, other tasks in BUDS, is they're kind of a measure that the instructors give the students to see how the students are going to conquer tasks or difficult problem sets that are in front of them which is, do you try to tackle the whole thing at once? Or do you break the problem up into various small bite-sized pieces and just eat those pieces one at a time? So do you try to eat the whole pie at once? Or you, do you just eat the piece of the pie that's on your plate before moving on to the next piece? Right? And so that's been my motto recently. It's eat the piece of the pie that's on your plate. Um, and what I've found is that this is... Um, something that's I think well I'll, I'll say that I, I was going to say it's biblically attested but it's that one is this is kind of connected to my next talking point as well so I'll save that for the next one but w where you do see this in the Bible is in Jesus' prayer the Lord's prayer that first request that he gives to us. So after three requests, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's give us this day our daily bread. I think there's a way to read that mm -hmm. as though to say, give us this piece of pie that's on our plate <laughs> each day and just let us eat that, you know? Uh -huh. um, and I guess what I've found is that like, this is particularly useful in times of difficulty. It's useful in getting through difficult times when your mind literally can't digest all of the problem at once. The way you 
can conquer these things is just by focusing on you know the the minuscule problem that's in front of you so whether you're running you know a marathon just focus on the next two minutes of running anyone can do anything for two minutes or so and then after that just tell yourself okay the next two minutes anyone can do anything for two minutes and you just keep building on that and pretty soon you know you will have run the marathon two minutes at a time yeah do you have any any thoughts on that i do okay it kind of connects to one that i'm going to talk about all right um so it one also reminds me of mana in the in the wilderness oh daily bread daily bread yeah but also like don't collect more than you need for today like don't try to store it don't you know basically you have to rely on god for every day in of itself yeah and on the sabbath rest and don't go out and collect anything because the day before you collected twice as much just a side note that is kind of uh, a fractal of every day you have this kind of collecting these little things one it, it's reminiscent of creation at the end god says oh it was very it, it was good it was good for every day and on uh when he created humans is very good and that's a double portion and then on the seventh day he rests okay that's a side note okay it also reminds me of Jesus's, um, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of towards the very end, when he says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself, but sufficient is the day for its own troubles. Or even when Peter is walking on water, he's not supposed to look at, oh, man, look at all of these things I have to, like, go through. It's just focus on jesus and just walk like one step one step one step yeah personally that's incredibly difficult like especially when you're pushed for time you start working on something and then you second guess is this what i should be working on right now and you flip to something else and then you start doing that and you're like wait no, there's something else that I need to be doing. And you yeah. just keep going in a big circle, just changing things yeah. constantly. And I think the issue isn't that you get to... Sometimes the issue is that you get discouraged because you see how much you still have to do. But sometimes you get discouraged because you see, I'm not going to get this all done. What should I be doing right now? And you try to do a lot of little things, you don't get anything done. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, in that case, like, before you can be tactically minded, you have to be strategically minded. Which means that before you can eat the piece of the pie that's on your plate, you have to know why you're eating that piece of pie. Vice, another piece of pie. You have to know why you're eating the pumpkin pie. Vice, the pecan pie. I was going to use the exact same <laughs> pies as the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just to say that, like, you need you need to have those bigger questions answered. So, why am I doing this? Before you can effectively accomplish what you're doing. I, I would agree. The thing is, sometimes, 
it's kind of hard to tell and it's very muddled and you can either spend a lot of time debating like oh which one is which one is better which one right. do I actually need to eat and at what point do you just have to be like I just gotta go for one of them right and in, in that sense you know the people who are going through something like buds have it not easy but they don't face this dilemma uh-huh. because their priorities are prearranged. Yeah. Their priority is, hey, like, get through this school, you know. Yeah. Whereas here in daily life, you know, you have to prioritize things. Mm-hmm. So you have to know what takes first place. Mm-hmm. Why does it take the first place? Mm-hmm. What takes second, third, fourth? So you need that priorities list before you can ap- effectively accomplish those things on those priorities. So you need to know, like, okay, what's the number one priority? Uh-huh. Map that out, and then eat that piece of pie, you know. And then, what's number two? Map that out, then eat that piece of pie. I guess that's what I would say. And all of that can accumulate to the piece of pie that's on your plate for that day. Yeah. I would agree. I would say it's also. A little more even complicated than that because like that's the difference between what's urgent and what's important like what's urgent is coming at you right now but what's important matters like in the long term and so if you're working on something if you only work on what's urgent you'll never get to what's important but if you only work on what's important the number one priority what's urgent is going to fall behind and you're not even going to get to complete what's important because you're done like you're out of here all right you never completed what was urgent so you need to balance those as well okay Uh, yeah that's a good point and i think also in that priorities like if something really urgent comes up your priorities are kind of dynamic and so you can't lay it all out beforehand without leaving room for adaptation along the way. Yeah, it's just something that I need to learn maybe in the next two years. <laughs> that's my, that's kind of my thoughts. All right, do you want to move on to your second one? Yes. Um, so here's the title of my second one. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Oh, all right. Um, Let's get into it. So, this. So, I don't typically make like what people define as like New Year's resolutions goals of I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this much by this time, yada yada, like how you're supposed to set goals. Because the year is a really long time and you think, ah, I got so much time. But I'll have like a yearly theme. And sometimes maybe like a rule for the year. And so for 2020, my yearly theme was the year of rest. But really what that looked like was one of the rules for the year was don't do any work on Sundays. Do you mean 2021? No, I mean 2020. Okay. <laughs> this is, we haven't done a podcast in a long time. <laughs> yeah, okay. So this was 2020. This was last year. 
Um, and sometimes it was hard. I mean, I was in undergrad and graduate class, something like close to 20 hours. Um, and I had a part-time job and, you know, then COVID hit. And so there was a lot going on. Yeah. But I started to love Sundays yeah. because I used to hate Sundays because you're like, oh, Monday, like Mondays ruin Sundays. Yes. Was the catchphrase. Yeah. But when you don't do any work, if you set that rule in place, that means on Saturday, you're like, okay, maybe I actually have to do even more today. But that means that I actually don't have to do anything tomorrow. Um, and it's like what we were talking about with the mana. You know, Saturday, maybe a double portion. But on Sunday, you, you rest. Um, and I wish I could make something more profound than that. Other than the fact that it was great. Have you continued with that habit? Yeah. So you still don't do any work on Sundays? No. Hmm. Do you ever find that you are tempted to do work on Sundays? Um, yes. Yeah. But that's more so because... You know, maybe something comes up and it's, and it's due Sunday night. And one time I realized that there was something due Sunday night at like one in the morning, Saturday night. So typically what I was like, oh, I'll just do it tomorrow. But I was like, no, I have to get it done today. <laughs> and so I stayed up till like two completing this assignment. But then on Sunday, I didn't have to do it. So let me stop you right there. Because technically, if it's on Saturday night that you're doing it, All right. that's Sunday morning. No, it is morning to morning. That's a Sunday. All right. That's how that's how we talk about Sundays. You say, oh, Saturday night. You don't say, oh, Sunday morning at 2 a.m. You could. Yeah, but come on. Be real. No, I'm just saying, because this is something that I try to apply in my life. Don't do any work on Sundays. What there's is Sunday? A, there's you can you can kill this thing with a thousand qualifications, right? Uh -huh. So like, oh, do errands? Can you go grocery shopping on Sundays? Can you do laundry on Sundays? What can you do on Sundays? And I I agree, and I think those are like that's why it's it's not something that's like super rigid. And Jesus kind of gets onto the Pharisees about like, all right, come on, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Like yeah. You know, we, the interpretation of that isn't set in stone. And for me, it was no schoolwork, no paid work. So I would still, I could still do laundry. I still did laundry. I still cooked. You know, but that was the rule. Okay. Um, and also there's a book, the reason, so the title is Ruthlessly Eliminate Harry. And that was a book I read a couple months ago. So not in 2020, in 2021 Who by John Mark Comer. Okay. 
he is the epitome of a Portland pastor. Like he just, you read the book and you're like, I would audibly laugh out loud at some of the things he would say because I'm like, that is so Portland. Like, I don't know what you mean. Like if anyone's ever seen Portlandia, maybe not that extent, but it's just like super like, you know, hipster talking about, yeah, so I would sit down and crack open a craft IPA while watching, you know, an indie kung fu movie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that means. Exactly. You're like, all right. Um, but it, it, I mean it's a good book Kate, Kate kind of makes fun of it uh, so Kate's our sister yeah. for all the listeners out there yeah for the people in our family yeah <laughs> um, because sometimes he'll, he'll go a little extreme and he kind of connects rest with minimalism like ruthlessly eliminating hurrying with ruthlessly eliminating things I don't necessarily agree with him on that, but he has some interesting points. So that that's just a shout out. I'll link it in the description. <laughs> um, and also, it makes you ask the question, like, why are we hurrying? Like, where are we going? Like, so what if we're late? Like, will this actually make a difference? Yes, it will. Where? Depends. Where are we going? No, you want to make a habit of punctuality. That's not what I mean, like, late by that. I don't mean, like, showing up late. Because I think you can say... I think there's legitimate answers to that. One of them being... So what if we're late? You'll say, oh, people will take it as... We don't care about them to show up on time. And I think that's a legitimate reason to say, alright, well then we should be on time. But... How... Like, that doesn't always apply. No, okay, it doesn't always apply. But I can I can give you a couple of reasons why we hurry. I can tell you why I hurry, particularly in the morning. Okay, so on my way to work, here's kind of what happens in my morning. I wake up at a given time, and I hit snooze maybe like five times. You what? <laughs> I snooze my alarm to where it's like, okay, I had initially thought or... I had initially fooled myself into thinking, oh, I'm going to have 45 minutes in the morning before I have to leave. Now I only have 20, right? So automatically my day starts out with, okay, what you thought you had 45 minutes to do, you've got to compress it into a time span of 20 minutes. So hurry right there. Usually I exceed that 20-minute time span, which means I set out on the road late, right? Which means what? which means I'm speeding to get to work, which is a habit of mine. Um, it's not the best habit. But it's not a good habit at all. No. I've been in the car with you. It is terrifying. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, if you can see my face. I'm actually being very serious. Yeah, all right. Um, but it, it, it all culminates in me walking into work either on time or like one to two minutes over or maybe one to two minutes within the, the time frame but I'm always like right there you know but it I'm saying like if I wasn't hurried you know I hit that snooze button five times and I'm not getting into work till 30 minutes after I'm supposed to be there right that which means what 
which means if I could discipline myself to not hit the snooze button so many times, then I might not have to eliminate hurry. No, no, But no. here's the qual. Here's the problem. Is okay. So why can't I eliminate that snooze button need for myself? Right. One of the problems is that I'm so tired all the time. Right. So I go to bed. So, like, I try to go to bed at a reasonable hour, but then I lay in bed and I can't fall asleep. Which means what? Which means I'm gonna have to make that up on the other end. Which means snoozing the alarm. <laughs> that is the cycle. Like I know that is the cycle. Okay, so why can't I just accept that loss of sleep and not hit the snooze button? Okay, well, part of me doesn't want to deal with the reality of having to do another day of just eating that piece of pie that's in front of me. That's the connection. Part of me doesn't want to wake up to reality. Part of me wants to stay in that fantasy world of dreams. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be your ruthless elimination of hurry isn't I'm going to show up late. It's I'm going to get up on time. But that's still eliminating hurry. Yes, but at the same time, you are eliminating rest. Just put your alarm clock on the other side of your room. That's what I do. My alarm is like, it goes, eh, 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 eh. And you have to physically go over there and flip the switch to turn it off. Yeah. It's a good point. I mean, I've never been able to conquer this. The snooze thing. Like, I wish I was an early morning riser, even on days when I didn't have to wake up early. Like, I wish I could say, yeah, I'm getting up at 5, getting up at 4. Jock of 3.30. <laughs> Sometimes you'll see on his, on his Instagram, like, he'll pick, post a picture of his watch, and it's all black and white, and he's at the gym, and there's a puddle of sweat, and he'll say, like, 3.45 a.m., and you're like, dude. <laughs> Why? That's cool, man. I can't do that. Yeah, you could if you wanted to. Oh, that would kill me. You just don't want to. And that's fine. Crazy people want to. Yeah, but it's something... Like, that that sets him apart, you know? That helps him get things done throughout the day. Yeah. So, I don't know. But... We, We don't have to press this conversation too much further. Yeah. Um... So your third one. By the way, we're already over an hour in, so we should. That's cool. All right. I've noticed podcasts tend to go upwards of an hour sometimes, so that's all right. Third one. On my end, I'm gonna read a quote, and then we're gonna say what my third one is. So here's the quote: If you make your bed every morning you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a sense, a small sense of pride and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made, and a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. So that is a quote from a man named uh, Admiral William, William. McRaven. Yeah. Um, 
I'm assuming you can guess what the title of my third lesson learned is. Listen to Admiral William. <laughs> no, it's make your bed. Make your bed. Make your bed. All right, so this is something that I first learned in high school. Um, that's because Admiral McRaven, McRaven actually first, I guess, released kind of the content. Actually, this quote is from a speech that he gave at the University of Texas. Commencement speech. Right, their yeah. commencements, commencement speech, which I listened to for the first time back in high school. I guess my football coach put me onto it. So we listened to it before like one of our scrimmages or something like that. Uh, and it kind of set me on the idea of like, I never understood why I made my bed in the morning. Now I understand why. And now I see a bigger purpose to just this small act. Um, and it's something that when I was at the Air Force Academy, that's something that we kind of had to do every day. Of course, it was not a difficult task. At the Air Force Academy, more likely than not, it was just throw your covers over your bed and then just leave it like that so that whoever's inspecting your room can come in and see something that is quasi-presentable. Um, but even more so, like when I'm, when I'm home or even when no one's going to inspect my room in the morning, this is something that I still try to do every day. I'm not perfect about it, but I still tr generally try to make my bed every single day, even when there doesn't seem to be a reason for it. And I think subconsciously, there's something that just feels good about walking into a room with a made bed. You know, it's, it is kind of like he talks about in the quote, it's a fresh start, which means you're going to be able to unmake that bed when you get into it that night and kind of feel like, hey, I'm starting over. The day's starting over, you know? It's clean, which for me personally, when you walk into a room that's clean, I guess it diminishes stress level. Yeah. Because you don't feel like you have to exert your will into the room to organize. It's already organized, which mm -hmm. means that you can kind of lay out other problems into the room and sort those out instead of tackling the physical problems in the room. Um, but I think most importantly, what make your bed for me means recently, and this kind of connects to the eat the piece of pie that's on your plate, is do you know how coaches in high school, especially in football, would say, you have to get the little things right? Is that like a typical coach thing to say? It's a very, very coach thing okay. to say. This is not what I mean by that. <laughs> I, by make your bed, I do not mean get the little things right, though I do think that's important. I mean that in times of stagnation and in times of dryness when it comes to creativity uh, and in times of, I guess, where you don't know what you're, what to do with yourself or where you don't know how to apply yourself in order to make a difference or whatever. Start off by doing something small. Like they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. So start by laying one brick. And I think this is different from the eat the piece of pie that's in front of you because eat the piece of pie that's in front of you, to me, is not talking about constructive, but it's talking about getting through something so yeah. enduring something difficult, enduring, yeah right this is talking about construction construction yeah. and creativity so in order to accomplish something great you do it one step at a time you lay one brick at a time and one of the ways you can do that just throughout your day is just 
exert some kind of constructive energy into the day. First off, by making your bed and see what follows that. Check off one thing on your checklist, the smallest thing. Just cross off one thing and then see what happens next. Mm-hmm. So it is very similar to the eat the piece of pie that's in front of you, but this is more aimed at, okay, how do you build something? How do you construct something? It's one piece at a time. And if the piece that's in front of you seems too big, break it up again. Go for something smaller. Break it up again. Go for something smaller. This is something that Jordan Peterson also talks about um, when he kind of talks about like the maps of meaning and you know, how do you slay the dragon, mythologically speaking, as well as whatever that dragon kind of means in your life. is You slay the dragon by breaking it up into little pieces and then eating it. Eating the little pieces of the dragon. So that's my uh, that's my third one. Do you have any thoughts on it? Um, I do. Okay. It kind of reminds me of. Product development, and innovation. Um, have you ever read the Lean Startup? Mm-mm. Well, it is like the Bible of startups. It is the methodology that people go through. Basically, what it is, is start out with a minimum viable product. And you want to then subject that to feedback. So that if this idea sucks, it'll kill it immediately. But if it's good, you go to the next iteration. You make it an improvement and you subject it to feedback again. And so it's essentially, how do you test something that is so uncertain is, well, you do a little experiment where if it fails, it won't destroy you. Okay. You make little bets. You do little things. Um, and so that that's kind of how the lean startup works and there's a whole methodology and all these things and that means that failure is a learning opportunity because you learned what didn't work and i think how that kind of connects to what make your bed every day is you were talking about how it's constructive it's like you do something you're like completing something yeah and i guess this is this is more of like a layer on top of that is you're constructing something small and subjecting it to feedback like making your bed is kind of preordained you're like this is a thing i can do every day but sometimes you don't know what to do in a given day but if you can do something give like a little bit of a test into some idea that you have you can subject that to feedback and that can inform your decisions and so like what Jordan Peterson talks about sometimes and I have issues with him I'm just gonna throw that out there I really do really yes where um before we come back to this his IQ like he he kind of talks about IQ a lot yeah IQ studies I think those are bogus those okay. studies that he talks about. Okay, we can come back to this later. And well, the other one is 
And I mean, that, that would be a bigger debate, but you know. Never mind. I'm not going to talk about the other one. That that would open a whole can of worms. I'm not okay. For. Um, but what he talked about is, you know, aim for something and then shoot and you're going to miss because you don't even really know what you should be aiming for. But whatever you hit will inform where you where you actually should be and then you can take another path and and yeah, aim again it's a feedback mechanism it's like numerical methods you um basically if you're trying to uh figure out where you are on a curve or like um differential calculus like if you want to find the minimum or maximum of some function, maybe it's like, you know, several dimensions, like five or something, six dimensions. What you do is you find out where you are with all these coordinates. And you take the slope of everything around you and you go, if I'm going to try to find the maximum, I'm just going to go where the highest slope is from here. And you start heading up that hill and then you take, you just take a very small step. And then you do the same thing. Where's the maximum like slope of where I am to go uphill? And you find where the maximum slope is and you take another step and you do the same thing over and over and you iterate to a maximum point. And that maximum point might not be the absolute max of the function. So you start out and you shoot another random spot into the function and you do the same test. And you might end up at a higher peak or a lower peak or the same peak. And you can kind of keep doing that over and over with different points to find what is the maximum thing to be doing on. But it's just trial and error. Okay, so how does that relate to making your bed? Well, making your bed is one small thing. It's just like you just sh shooting it into the function. Okay. And you're like, okay, well, where now? And then it's an honest assessment of where to look. So I think making your bed is like the starting point. And then you look and you see, okay, what's something else we can tackle? Okay. Um, yeah. No, that's kind of how I'm. It's kind of an iteration kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Good. Do you want to move on to your uh, your third one? Yes. Um, and so I'm kind of picking and choosing mine based off of what you get and see what it relates to what I still yeah. have to say. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna. I've kind of changed them since I last talked to you. This one is, how do you live in a world that is so uncertain? That's a really good question. And so, probably the second most important book I've read since we last talked, after the Bible, is Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Yes. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, Nassim Taleb um, is an author, a trader, an academic statistician who made a lot of money in the stock market crash of 1987. And he kind of has a lot of ideas that are focused on epistemology or the problem of induction is a big thing that he tries to tackle. And this is the problem of induction. He talks about it in his book, The Black Swan, in that 
Europeans used to think that all swans were white. And each swan that they saw confirmed, or they thought confirmed that. They said, oh, here I see another swan. It's white. Another swan. It's white. Another swan. And they thought they were adding up all of these evidence to come to this conclusion. Because that's what we do right. in inductions. But, well, the process of induction is looking at a data set uh-huh. and then abstracting from that data set to a general conclusion uh-huh. that you hold is true. Yeah. That's kind of what, that in, that's what induction is. That is what this... And it's held in... All swans are white. You right. see all these data points of all these swans, and they're all white. You can abstract, okay, swans are white. Yes. And then they went to Australia, and they saw a black swan. And that shattered all... No matter how many white swans you saw, you see one black swan. It disproves all swans are white. Yes. And so that's the problem with induction, is how can we draw conclusions from data when just one piece of evidence can completely disprove all of the additive things that we have. It's what falsification is. So the scientific method, what you're trying to do is you should be trying to disprove whatever you think. Right. You should be trying to disprove because right. disproving it is more robust than trying to prove what you just did. Okay, so what I'm hearing is the problem with induction is that induction does not cover all of its bases when it comes to falsification. Yeah. So the problem is a problem with uncertainty. Uh-huh. And that whatever conclusion you come up with from induction, mm-hmm. you can never be 100% certain no. that it's the right conclusion. Yeah. And because of that 0.1% that it maybe accounts for your uncertainty, the fact that that 0.1% exists sort of you know throws a wrench into how you think about what i should do well it throws a wrench not only into what you think about what you should do but it throws a wrench into the the certainty with which you can derive any conclusions from Uh the process of induction right because that point one exists you cannot hold any conclusion from an induction with any measure of certainty Mm -hmm. right you have to hold it with uh, you have to hold it with open hands, so yeah. to speak. And that, that comes to sometimes it all depends on, well, if something that I'm blind to does happen, how, how bad, like, would I be completely destroyed? Or is it fine? Like, even if something is wildly outlandish, does it have any effect on me? Like, seeing... A black swan like wow that shatters what you think about swans but that's kind of it but he also talks about the turkey problem and that's a turkey believes that the job of a farmer or whatever is to feed turkeys and to be nice to them <laughs> and every day throughout its entire life is further evidence to support that fact until the day before Thanksgiving. Yes. When everything comes crashing down. And that has a huge effect on the turkey. So it has wildly, like, so in an abstract sense of the term, a black swan is something that has such a wildly outlandish effect on whatever 
it comes into contact with that that dominates the discussion. Yes. Yes. And so if you're talking about something like height, and let's say you average the height of a thousand people, and let's say someone who's eight foot five walks in, that's an outlier. But they're not gonna severely dent the average height. Like they're not gonna it's not gonna be a wild jump. Right. Okay. But let's say you average the net worth of a thousand people. And then Jeff Bezos walks in. That's going to skew the average so ridiculously far that that's the only thing you should be looking at. Right. So to clarify, the so Jeff Bezos, within the context of average net worth of a thousand mm-hmm. people, he is a black swan. Yeah. Whereas someone like Yao Ming, within the context of the average height of a thousand people. Yao Ming isn't necessarily a black swan no. because his height doesn't exceed everyone else's height it, by that much. Basically, that goes to what he calls concave and convex. So, as you get taller, the actual height that someone can get taller like diminishes completely rapidly. Like, right. but. Which is when what you concave look at like, or convex? Is that... that is something that is uh, concave. Okay. So it has diminishing returns as you move further on the x-axis. The y-axis gets higher by lower and lower. Okay. But if you have something that's convex, the further you get on the x-axis, the higher, the higher and higher y gets. Yeah. So you can also think of book sales. Book sales are dominated by black swans. Let's say you get a thousand random ISBN numbers and you average the number of book sales. And then you get Harry Potter and you throw that into the mix. It'll be wildly dominated. Like the average book sale is probably like five. I don't know. Because there's so many that don't sell any. But then there's some that sells hundreds of millions of copies. Yeah. So that is something that is dominated by black swans. Okay. And that our world is dominated by black swans. History is dominated by black swans. Things that you don't see coming but have a huge impact on history. Like 9-11. That came out of the stock market, or like the housing bubble burst in 2008. Um, so how do you live in a world, or what you mentioned yesterday, floods. You know, we build a flood to the worst storm that's ever happened. We oh, build like... Flood levees. We build like a levee or something to the worst storm that has ever happened. But if we look back, we say, well, until that flood happened... The worst one was lower than that. And so we kind of completely ignore that fact. And we think, oh, nothing can be worse than what's the worst that's already happened. Right. Well, just to give a little bit of context here, this is something Jordan Peterson um, talks about. Unfortunately, I can't give any references to specific videos or books or writing pieces. But he does talk about how when the people in New Orleans were conducting or constructing the flood levees, to protect the city in the case of a hurricane, they constructed the levees to outstand or uh, withstand the worst storm in say a hundred years. Whereas the people, I think, I think he says in Amsterdam or somewhere in the Netherlands, the Netherlands, the yeah. Netherlands were constructing flood levees. They constructed theirs to withstand a worse storm that could happen upon the region in ten ten thousand years, right? Which is to say, they were accounting for a much more outlandish event than uh-huh. the people in New Louisiana were 
But if you look at history, like 2000, was it 2005, uh-huh. Hurricane Katrina came, and the flood levees couldn't stop the hurricane. Yeah. And this actually connects to the idea of fractals. Um, but if you want to see that connection, you'll have to read Antifragile. Okay. Um, so there's the question, how do we live in a world dominated by uncertainty? Dominated by black swans. By dominated by black swans. Okay. And there's a few different answers. One is to look at if something happens, not saying, not trying to predict what will happen, but saying if something happens, how will this thing impact me? Like how, or like how will this affect us? Yeah. Not saying how will one thing affect us, but like, let's say a disaster happens. How can we predict like just a general disaster? And you're like, okay, well you have some level of um, insurance. You have some level of inventory, whether it's food or whatever. Yeah. Okay. You also have, neighbors yeah that you have relationships with and that's kind of a risk mitigation strategy another way is um what he calls anti-fragility which is is kind of a similar thought process but which is how you deal with the black swans yeah that's his solution that's his solution to the black swan problem is anti-frat okay and so what is the opposite of fragile? Well, yesterday no, I no, thought... No. Yeah, just say what you said. When what we were talking about thing. this previously, my answer was resilience. Yes, or robustness. That's what people say is the opposite of fragile. But that's like saying the opposite of one is zero. And that resilient just means it is... If something is fragile and it's pushed around, it'll easily break. Right. Something that's resilient, if pushed around won't easily break right but something that is the opposite of fragile something that is anti-fragile something that is negative one to the one instead of a zero right when it's pushed around it gets better right and as long if as it's not, not pushed around as long as it's not break as long as it's not pushed so hard that it breaks obviously right. it comes to an extent something that and if it's not pushed around and it's not subjected to this feedback or this randomness it gets worse Okay. So I think our body is a great example of that. You subject yourself to stress to some level of randomness like working out. Yes. And your body gets stronger. Yeah. Cuz it builds like let's say you you deadlift, you know, 300 pounds. And then your body in recovering prepares to deadlift 305 pounds. That's what your body's response is. It over calculate like it oh, over responds that. and that's how that's how you can prepare for something because it's an updated feedback of this is the worst thing we've experienced something worse can happen than that yeah so that that's how you respond to something yeah. that's worse that's okay. happened a slight overcorrection is yes. what it is um and i think i in the past two years i really got into cities in city development okay and i found oh and i found the organization strong strong 
strong talents. I don't know why I can't say that. Um, because I just Googled anti-fragile cities because I really love cities and urbanism and stuff. Well, let's regress a little bit. So your idea, or at least the idea that you're building on, is that things that are anti-fragile are... Gain from disorder. Are, that are things that gain from disorder... But typically, the things are not mechanical or man-made uh-huh. by yeah. nature. They're biotic or Bio, organic. They're, they're living yes. in some sense. Okay. Which is, that's why, mechanical, like, which is why you thought of the city. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like a computer with use and with time. It may be resilient. It may be robust. But over time, time will decay this computer. Right. Whereas something that's alive, like over time will only get better so like what we could say you know maybe not us us to some extent on one level but uh our genes or something you know so that that's kind of one thing it characterizes living organisms and that that has to do with scale so you know cities are kind of living in some way too and so strong towns the whole message of strong towns is he you know the guy who started it chuck marone he is a civil engineer and he had a company that did consulting for city services department of training those kind of things and he wanted to see why are these cities all bankrupt like why why can't they pay for all of these fixes that they need? And he was doing the math on these new developments that are typically suburban in character, like a big box store with a big parking lot. And he found that, you know, cities make money through property tax and to a very small degree sales tax, but mostly property tax. Okay. And he found that the, these developments don't pay enough in property tax to pay even for the maintenance, much less the upfront cost of whatever they're building. They can't support themselves. And so that kind of leads to a lot of different conclusions, which could be a podcast in of itself. But I recommend everyone read that book, Strong Towns. Strong Towns. Or Anti-Fragile. Yeah, Strong Towns is a book. Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Which like, is an anti-fragile solution to the problem of the problem fragility of and fragility in cities, urban areas. Okay. Um, or just read anti-fragile too and apply. You can apply that everywhere. Okay. That's a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. But. Okay. Yeah, what uh, you got any questions? On um, that? we kind of talked throughout. So I, I do think we kind of talked through that one. I like the concept. I one thing that kind of struck me as we were going through that was that I'd never thought of working out as subjecting your body to randomness. Uh-huh. That's a new model for me to view that process within the context of. I never thought about it like that before. Um, yeah, and so he also talks about like um, the pattern of eating, like or just food intake, for example. Right. Like. Rainier, randomly suggesting your, su- 
subjecting your body to a period of like maybe like a day of fasting or maybe a day of no meat or a day of feast just randomly subjecting your body to this kind of stress i mean it could kind of prepare for these kind of stress um and you can go into like oh wait why does fasting help you or whatever and his whole point is it doesn't really matter the mechanism what matters is that it works but it's also something that's been around for a long time like the idea of fasting has been around in human cultures like intentional for thousands and thousands of years and so you can see that there's some element of wisdom in that or let's say that that kind of builds on what he talks about as the lindy effect of let's say a book has been in publication for five years you can expect it'll be in publication for another five years but a book that's been in publication for 50 years you can expect will be in publication for another 50 or in print and so things that survive time not always but can typically survive because they've withstood the test of time and time has eliminated the things that don't work mm. so um, yeah fragile things break over time yeah that's one thing you can count on okay and you can kind of dig into how that connects to prophets in the bible but yeah that's you can that's some something people can think about yeah okay should i move into my fourth one yes all right so my fourth one you're gonna love this man it's chiastic uh (laughs) or at least the way i'm gonna explain it okay it's chiastic so my fourth one is titled let it snow Okay. And let me explain this one because there's a backstory to it. Um, okay. I will, exp- I will just start off by saying when I came home for Christmas in 2020, one of the things that I guess randomly or whatever crossed through my mind was like, oh, I would really like a white Christmas this year. And so I prayed something along the lines of, God, would you please make it snow on Christmas Eve? Backstory to this is when I was in middle school, we had a Christmas in Texas where it snowed on Christmas Eve. And it was picturesque. It was a really good memory. Um, And I was wanting that again or something like that. So I prayed, you know, God, would you make it snow on Christmas Eve this year? Um, Christmas Eve comes around 2020. I wake up, sunny outside, and if, if this snow's going to happen, I'm going to need a miracle. And, you know, it's a cold day, but it was really sunny, it didn't look like snow was in the forecast. So, I kind of begin to settle in my own mind, you know what, it looks like this prayer is just not going to be answered, it's just going to be one of those things. Which, if you know anything about praying for something and not getting an answer, every time you don't get an answer at least for me it kind of does something to my faith it kind of makes me question like like
why not? Like, I, I, I wanted this to happen. I, want, I thought it would build my faith if it did happen. Like, why didn't this happen? Um, and so that I, was, I guess I was kind of going into the day or throughout the day with that idea in mind. And we make it to this uh, Christmas Eve church service, which was outside. Um, it was cold. <laughs> it was really cold, yeah. And we go through the service, and in the middle of the service, the preacher, in giving his message, is kind of talking about how the people in Israel, as far as I remember, this is from the sermon, were asking God for one thing. They were asking God for deliverance. Mm-hmm. And God's answer to them wasn't necessarily what they had expected, but it was what they had need, which was God gave them a child. So God didn't give them someone who had you know already been prepared or like someone who was ready it wasn't an immediate answer for their question Mm -hmm. it was like he gave them a baby and it was going to take years for that baby to grow up and ultimately become a deliverer which i'm going to get into that in just a little bit um so basically the guy's message was what you ask for and what you get, sometimes there's a, a disparity between the two. Now, at the close of the service, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it because I took a video of it. It starts snowing. Um, except it wasn't the snow that I had expected, especially when praying this. It was the manufactured snow <laughs> that the church had set up around the congregation. It, it was outside, the by the way, because COVID and everything. Yeah. But. Yeah. So we were outside, the church had snow machines, and they started shooting out manufactured snow. And I guess in retrospect, I see that as an answer to my prayer. Yeah. As an answer to, uh, hey, it wasn't what you expected, but here's your snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so there's, uh, do you understand why I say that's chiastic? I say that's chiastic because... because in the middle. Yes. The chiasm, if you don't already know, um, is... A literary structure in which you have one idea encased within another idea so it within the context of this it would be pray for snow pastor's message pastor's solution within the message my answer to prayer so it's it's the it's the filling within the donut yeah it's the key component that you want to draw out is within it's sandwiched between two ideas that encompass it in some way so typically it there it's larger than that and like the first half mirrors the second half and there's more connection right so this is actually encased within another chiasm which i actually i don't want to get into in this podcast but i'll just say it was encased within a larger prayer that i was praying about which made me even more disappointed that I didn't get the snow that I wanted. I'll just leave it, it at that. Okay. Um, but it's all to say, I think a number of observations when it comes to looking at the difference between expectations and reality. Um, so what does is, what is let it snow mean to me, right? It means, I think, one, there's a disparity between God's will and our will. And I saw this in my request and received answer for snow. 
I think it also means there's a disparity between our limited vision and God's omniscience or a disparity between his knowledge and our own. And you see that not necessarily within the snow problem that I was bringing up, but you see it within the prayer of the people who were asking for deliverer. They didn't realize that it would take years for the deliverer to grow up, that the deliverer had to grow up as a man. And the deliverer had to become one of us. And it's see all that would go into that. And that's just hitting on the difference between how much God can see versus how much we can see. And it also hits on the, the messiness of reality, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, we don't always get what we expect because we have this ideal or picturesque picture, picturesque image of what we want to come as a result of our expectations or what we want to accompany our expectations. But reality is often more messy than we give it credit for. This is something that C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity. He says something along the lines of like what we would expect when it comes to God or what we would expect when it comes to whatever doctrine he was hitting on is that it's, it accords or aligns with the messiness of reality, mm-hmm. which is just that things don't always make sense all the time. Mm-hmm. And what's most real will probably align with that messy character of things not making sense. And I think, you know, this is ultimately, and I talked about this, you know, at my church the other day, this is ultimately hitting on the story that you can find within, I guess it's, I think it's all of the gospel accounts where Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem on the, on the colt, on the donkey. And the people are laying their coats out before him and they're shouting Hosanna, Mm -hmm. which if you don't know, Hosanna is a term that means Lord save. It's a cry for salvation. As Jesus is riding into the city on the donkey, the people are quoting Hosanna. And the picture that is being painted is one of Psalm 18. They're actually taking a quote from Psalm 118 and applying it to the situation. Hosanna to the son of David. They're applying, they're taking that quote out of Psalm 118 and shouting it back at Jesus. And in doing that, they're applying Psalm 118 to the the situation at hand. Psalm 118 is a a processional psalm. Mm -hmm. It is one of the psalms that accompanies the the Passover week, I think. Uh, Is it a psalm of ascent? I don't know if it's a psalm of ascent, but I know that throughout the Passover week, especially in the Gospels, there this psalm is um, repeatedly alluded to, repeatedly mentioned. It's the psalm that has uh, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. cornerstone. Right. So that one is referenced at another point within this last week, this this week that encompasses Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday. Um, but the picture that's being painted by connecting Psalm 118 with the situation at hand is that the Jewish people are expecting Jesus to be entering like deliverer. It's a procession of some kind of deliverance figure toward the temple. That's explicitly what Psalm 118 is referencing. Now, granted, Psalm 118 is talking about a deliverance figure that you know has won a victory already and in taking that victory is going into the temple in a processional manner accepting all of this praise 
Um, whereas the situation at hand is a little bit different. You could say that Jesus in his ministry up to that point had won a series of victories. Um, he had cast out demons. He had healed diseases. He had raised the dead. He had done all these miracles. He had preached his teaching throughout the masses. And he was coming in toward the temple in the same way that the imagery from the psalm paints it as a processional figure. And you could argue he's entering as a victorious figure as well. Um, but it's all to say that the people, as they're saying, Hosanna, they're crying for one type of salvation. They have this type of salvation mm -hmm. immediately on their minds, which is, Lord, save us from oppression, from the oppression that we think is the most pressing problem, which is the Roman oppression or political oppression. Except if you know anything about the story, is that he's going to go into the temple and four days later he's going to walk, you know, from Jerusalem outside the city gates and he's going to be crucified and he's going to achieve what we would say is victory there not necessarily in some other context and his victory that he achieves there is victory over spiritual oppression mm -hmm. that's all to say that the people were asking for one thing God was giving them something else they were asking for deliverance from political oppression whereas God had in mind deliverance from spiritual oppression and ultimately, you know, in terms of eschatological, uh, oh shoot, I forget the term. It's talking about like the already but not yet, the deliverance that God has already manifested in the past, how it has an immediate effect in the here and now. We have achieved deliverance. Mm -hmm except that deliverance will one day become a fuller deliverance, which is to say the spiritual deliverance that he's given will one day spread throughout all of society or will one day result in complete pol political deliverance, eschatologically speaking, so in the end times. That's mm -hmm. another theological terms. It's, it's just all to say that one day spiritual deliverance will become political deliverance. Mm-hmm. Just not yet. Yeah. One day it may snow on Christmas. Yes. Maybe just not 2020. Yeah. You just have to be content with the, the smaller, manufactured. The smaller vision of what snow kind of looks like. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. So that kind of, yeah, I was kind of thinking like that was the Jews, what they would see as like what they were looking for in Messiah's deliverance from political uh, oppression right. and it kind of reminds me of like the Gentile version of that is a king you know he has a crown and a robe and he sits on a throne and Jesus you know he had a crown of thorns they put a robe on him mockingly and put a scepter in his hand mockingly and they beat him with that scepter and his throne was a cross and so it's like if you look at kind of the pattern of Jesus's like, you know, execution, it's like a coronation ceremony. Like that's what it looks like, like yeah. a Roman like coronation. Mm. But in some kind of like irony, it's like ironic almost. Like you would expect him to look like one thing and he does, but like at the exact opposite of the spectrum. 
I don't know why it just made me think of that. Mm. But also, um, It kind of reminds me of Jesus' parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man planted. And it grew and became a big tree. And all the birds of the air and beasts of the field yeah. like, made its you know, nest. And it's something that starts very small. So it does. it starts, Jesus' like, the kingdom of God started with Jesus' death and resurrection and it's grown since then well yeah i don't know if that you could say that's the start but that i would say is the start of a new creation jesus resurrection is the start of a new creation but that that kind of did translate to political change as well like jesus you know had kind of pronounced woe on jerusalem he had seen the romans are going to destroy this place y'all are being like he he could see destruction coming and it did a couple decades later and even john in revelation is kind of saying hey rome will be crushed will be crushed just as babylon and egypt have and stuff like this like this empire will be crushed and it took a long time but he was right yeah. And what who had once persecuted Christianity adopted it. Which we can talk about if that was good or anything, but like making it an official the official religion. But that is yeah. But regardless you can say this is miraculous. Um, the one other thing it reminds me of is have you ever read anything by N.T. Wright? yeah do you like N.T. Wright? um elements elements yeah I love N.T. Wright okay um and one of the things he harps on is Platonism and I think that's kind of how we we look at things and we say oh there's these what does he call them like not figures forms forms there's these forms and that are like the perfect representation but then on earth it's all just shadows all just projections yeah it's not the ideal and heaven will be like you see all the forms and it's disconnected from this world And there's a lot I don't like in that. Like, that is... If that's the case, then why are we so adamant about a bodily resurrection? Yeah, no, I know. But God came to redeem the physical world as well. Like, all of creation. He said it was very good. Yeah. Um, and so... I think if you say, oh, these, this manufactured snow that came down, it's just a shadow of what real snow is like. But you have to think that that real snow is real, and it will come someday. Yeah. Physically, and stick. 
and the whole landscape will be washed white as snow. And that's as far as I can extend that metaphor. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's a good one. Do we want to get into your, uh, your fourth one? Yes. Um, okay. Here, I'm going to pop this. So my fourth one, right? Um, let's see which one. All right. So I kind of combined these two. Because when I was thinking about it, I realized they're kind of the same thing. So here's the titles. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. Okay. Or... The biggest treasures aren't on the map. All right. So, have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? Yes. So, spoiler alert, but it's also like 20 years old, so just go watch it or something. 25. I don't know. It doesn't matter. So, Will Hunting goes to... Robin Williams or whatever the guy what's his name I don't remember alright he goes into Robin Williams and he Will Hunting's genius guy but he's also like you know he's an orphan he's never left Boston he's never really done anything but he's yeah. read a lot yeah and he goes and he kind of picks apart this therapist who's played by Robin Williams and Robin Williams is kind of like distraught but then the next week Robin Williams gives him this little speech and he kind of goes into all of the differences between knowing and really knowing yeah so he says I bet you can tell me all the paintings in the Sistine Chapel but I bet you can't tell me what it smells like or he says if I asked you about love you could you know quote me Shakespeare but you can't tell me what it feels like to truly, you know, have been there with someone to the very end when they die of cancer or what. And that's kind of the difference between knowing something and experiencing something. And so, kind of one of the things is why I brought up that the Bible's a fractal is you're not when you experience the Bible like that you're not really learning anything new the larger structures it's kind of the same as the narrative structure like you've heard it before like the structure of the book of Matthew following the structure of Jesus's life it's like it's nothing new that you didn't know if you had already read the book right okay but you found it Especially if it's something that you found and you're like, oh, I can say this. You experience the search and the search is what changes you. It's like, 
it's like if you ever like wrestle you know with god over something you're like why did this happen why did this happen there's something in the wrestling that changes you okay not just who pins whom okay so the biggest treasures are not on the map they're in the journey they're in the journey is that right did i get that right um in a way i'm more saying that the treasure is oftentimes path dependent like you can only get the treasure if you've gone through the path the journey to find the treasure yeah otherwise when you find the treasure you'll be sorely disappointed it's like kung fu panda do you remember that movie yeah i remember poe has this long training journey to become the dragon warrior and he fights uh what's the guy's name some leopard i don't know i don't remember who had tried to take being a dragon warrior by force yeah but poe went through the whole journey and at the end he found the secret to being the dragon warrior is there's no secret like it there's no secret it's literally just a reflection of he opens the scroll and it's just reflective of whatever whoever's looking at it yeah and poe when he saw that eventually it clicked for him and he was able to use his training and this newfound knowledge to defeat the leopard who when he found that out just quit like raged quit really and so the treasure that you find i think it's a real treasure but it's one that is path dependent oh interesting yeah but i also think it's like that you know in a personal sense like we can talk about what it means to like love those around you but until you've had to you know sit and listen to someone that you really just don't like just ramble on about their opinions that you find abhorrent and not attack them or whatever is that what you're doing right now am i attacking you no <laughs> Um, you realize there's something in the struggle to love someone that changes you and that that's the that there's a treasure at the end of that okay and it is path dependent you can't yeah. get to the treasure because it's something you probably already know but when you go through the path you see it in a new light yeah and all of a sudden it changes you okay just a little bit here, a little bit there. So have you learned this over the past two years in a practical sense? I would say I have. Um, mainly in... Um, like, let me give an example. Here's one. Uh, in the past two years, I've lived with several different people had you know roommates and stuff and oftentimes we are very different to say the least okay but my friend robbie for example 
he sees the world in a different way. He's an artist. like, And sometimes that way is hard for me to understand. And I see the world in a way that's hard for him to understand sometimes. But if you're patient, you can, it can open a whole new world of the way you can look at it. Yeah. And I would say that that is an amazing friendship that I have that if it wasn't for, you know, really digging in and trying to like understand a person and being patient and all of these things, then we wouldn't have this kind of experience. Because yeah. I would say typically we, are, we would be very different, but if it wasn't for, you know, the love of Jesus, really, it, we probably wouldn't have been friends in the first place to have this kind of experience later on, you know? So that, that's one thing. Cool. Very cool. Um, I think we might be running a little bit low on time. What? So you said just... podcasts go so long. It's only two hours. <laughs> I'm going to jump into my fifth and final one. Which I will, I guess I will start off this one like I started off the last one by reading a quote so let me pull it up real quick so this is from the book of Psalms I'm just going to start reading in verse 7 and then finish what chapter? 90 sorry this is from Psalm 90. I'm going to start reading in verse 7 and finish in verse 12. So this is something that is accredited to Moses. He writes, We are consumed by your anger. He's, this is a prayer that he's offering to God. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So the uh, thing that I want to draw out from that passage particularly is the fifth lesson that I have begun to learn and am still learning is a phrase from there which is number your days so that's my fifth one number your days um, and I'll, I'll just say I guess this came home to me or I, I started to view this in a new light when I um I guess I had a, a thought like what if you could create some kind of spreadsheet that could show at any given moment not just how many days that you have left in your life if that how many days you have left with certain people so how many days you have left in certain relationships and what if you could document that you might see that some are running low like some people are going to be gone before you know it. Some, some people you're not going to talk to again before you know it, right? 
Um, whereas others, you might see a little bit, a little bit more time. My question is, given that spreadsheet and that knowledge that comes with it, how would that change your perspective? And more than that, how would that change the way you live? Would it change the way you treat the people? Would it change the way you think about them? Would it change the way you spend the time that you have with them? I think, you know, the cliche answer, and maybe this is a cliche question, which is, yes, if we had that spreadsheet and that knowledge, it would change the way that we lived and that we thought. Um, and it wouldn't make us take things for granted. The fact of the matter is that we do not have that spreadsheet and that knowledge. We don't have access to it at any given time. But what we do have access to is the fact of our mortality. So, and I consider that, if not the spreadsheet, the next best, best thing, which is that we do have a limit on the number of days we have allotted to us in our lives. Um, and that's something that the psalmist, so Moses, hits on, which is, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I want to hit on four observations that if you just look at what the text says, you can come to, come to these observations. So, number one is that awareness of mortality Human mortality is something that we have to learn. It's not something that comes naturally. This is what the, the psalmist says. So teach us to number our days. Mm. You learn through being taught. The second observation is awareness of mortality is arguably something that only God can teach you. You have to see this one within the context of the prayer as a whole. So teach us to number our days. This is debatable. Um, it might be something that God doesn't have to directly teach you. It might be something that you can learn through observation from around you. Uh, theologically speaking, you might be able to say that God has to open your eyes to that before you can realize it. I don't know. Um, but the psalmist does ask that God teach him to number his days. Observation number three, awareness of personal mortality is not immediately evident despite the fact that death is evident. Um, so this is something that I guess I read in a commentary on this passage, which is, you know, we, we seem to think of ourselves as invincible or immortal. Mm -hmm. And then we have these moments in our lives that kind of awaken us to the fact that we are not invincible or immortal. Like we have these close calls with death, death or someone we know it was our age or something like that dies and we kind of confront our mortality in that sense but then we forget it and then the next day it's like oh that fact is now a distant fact it's something that you know makes sense intellectually but doesn't completely make sense to me emotionally every day because if it made sense emotionally to me every day I would probably view the world differently I would see it through different eyes um, and then the fourth observation is awareness of mortality is something that precedes wisdom or at least coincides with wisdom and that's coming from the quote itself so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom he connects the two when you know you're mortal somehow that connects with having a heart of wisdom um 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I do. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes okay. 3. Um, the whole chapter, but specifically, you know, he, he just follows the, a time to this and a time to that. Yeah. And then he says, verse 9, What gain has a worker from his toil? I have seen that the business of God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, what's the connection? It's, it's like God has put eternity on our hearts. Yet, we still die. Like, we have a short, like, it's not. Yet, we're still mortal, you know? Um, and so, what is the solution to that? It's to number your days, right? Well, number your days. This is, is connected with the heart of wisdom because, practically speaking, when you know you have a deadline on something, and I, I heard this from someone, I don't immediately call who it was, but the way to accomplish something is to set a deadline, or at least recognize the fact that you do have a deadline. Because otherwise, like the things that you say, oh, I'm going to do one day, mm -hmm. if you don't look at them within the context of that deadline, they will always be someday things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you see, okay, there's a deadline on these things, which means I have to do them. That's when you start to make that tr transition from those things becoming or being one day things to becoming this day things. Yeah. Which is like the Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying. Yeah. You know, the guy gets the cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. and then he's like, oh, now I got to go skydiving. So he goes skydiving and then he goes Rocky Rock Mountain climbing. <laughs> yeah. No, it, and I think. Part of that is, it's a today thing. It's not like a, it, it also connects with the eat the piece of pie that's in front of you. Or what was the one after that? The constructive. The build, make your bed. Yeah, make your bed. It's living in the present. And part of the thing is that is very cliche, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. But but that's why it goes to there's a difference between knowing and knowing and the best treasures aren't the map because when you really dig into this and you and you do number your days and you go through that journey you find that the answer is you know a cliche but you see it differently yeah it's the hobbit it's yeah you return back home and you see it differently. But it's cliche. Yes. And I think something that's something Jesus understood and rabbis understood and that their teachings you know Jesus taught in parables. And in Matthew 13 that's when he first starts speaking of parables. 
and his reason for giving parables is so that people would not understand and that you have to search yes in the first half of his teachings it's hiding things and the second half is revealing things in matthew 13 it's chiastic yeah um because that's where the wisdom ends is it comes in the big but it also reminded me of um i guess it's a podcast i listen to but it's originally just an article that's on this blog essentially called epsilon theory and it's called the long now is the name of this little note that he wrote in this little podcast And he kind of contrasts the way that the world pushes us is to invest for the present and live for the future, live in the future. So take on, you know, take on debt for the present and invest for the future, maybe like retirement kind of thing. Yes. But he's saying the long now is everything that we pull in from the future or from our kids future into the now and we push out the things that we could be experiencing as of right now i'm kind of butchering the podcast you should listen to it but his and then he connects it to the story of his father like he said all of a sudden things changed in 1994 when his daughter his first daughter was born and when his father died and he gives the story of his father was living in london at the time with his mom for you know five months just because it was a chance for them to live in a city that he loved and you know they had just retired and he calls the guy who wrote the article his name is ben hunt he calls ben his son and says hey, you know, uh, I was wondering, do you have any, like, free time if you want to come to London? And he's like, uh, yeah, let me let me just check. I have a couple days. Let me go check. And he goes to a travel agency, and he tries to find a, a ticket. Like, it'll be $600. And that was a lot to him at the time because, you know, he's just starting out work. He doesn't have as much. So he calls his dad back, and it's like, hey, like, I really can't, like, afford this. And his dad's like, no problem. I get it. And he never saw his father again. Yeah. And that kind of struck him. And I mean, obviously it would. But what he learned is that it's not a long now. The now is short. And we should live in the present. Or, yeah, live in the present and invest in the future. I think I flipped that around when I was first talking about it. It's that we invest in the present and live in the future. Like, oh, I'll do this when I retire. I'll do this when I retire. Yeah. But we should live in the now and invest for the future, mm. which might not even be our future, but other people's. That's interesting. So I think we should hit on, we should move on to yours so we don't get cut yes. off time. Okay. Um... I've kind of changed around my last one. Uh, this past year, I read a lot of books about 
collapse. The collapse of civilizations. Okay. Um, and they all have very different ideas of how it comes about. But one thing that's similar, I would say, is there is kind of a doom and gloom that comes with all these books. Obviously, if you're reading about the fall of the Roman Empire, yeah. they're obviously going to make some connections to America. Or, you know, they're talking about, you know, peak oil or something like that. It's very doom and gloom. And it's hard to see, especially if you read several of these kind of books, it's hard to see kind of the optimistic side of it. But something I've learned is that there can be a glimmer of hope in the doom and gloom. And it, it reminds me of like in the prophets, you know, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're pronouncing like doom and gloom on Jerusalem. But it's in the light of an eternal um, hope for salvation and reconciliation. So I don't really have a title for this last one. Okay. Other than Doomer Optimism. Is that you can be a Doomer about the immediate future while still being optimistic about the immediate future. Which doesn't sound like it, it makes sense, but you can say, hey, as things fall apart, and I understand maybe the causes, or I understand the mechanisms and how people kind of will react to these things, you're perfectly positioned to be a light to others who are going through kind of this kind of collapse. And I would say, I, I probably got into all these books because, you know, COVID happened and all of a sudden everything just changed. Like one day, you know, in school, going to class and the next day, class online for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And you don't know, you know, how many people are going to die. Like you, you're just all of a sudden things change and you walk around campus and you look and you say, these way that we have been living is fragile like it is and i don't mean that in the missing to love sense i mean that it it can just change yeah. out of nowhere yeah, yeah, yeah. but in that change there can still be constants like daniel the, bo the point of the book of daniel is kingdoms rise and fall but god's kingdom is eternal yeah, okay. and so we can live in that kingdom as of now mm. you know as we're citizens of that kingdom so that was kind of a ramble but I don't know do you think anything about it um, yeah you kind of caught me off guard I thought that last one was going to be take a hike yeah 
It wasn't. Yeah, I didn't really have anything other than you know it's it's kind of nice to go on long walks. <laughs> um. No, I don't know that I really have anything on that one. I I, I think I would say I concur. <laughs> Do you concur <laughs> with what you I said? <laughs> I haven't studied collapse of civilizations a lot. Uh, I suggest it, but it'll it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, like we always we always talk about oh the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. It's so awful, and like all this civilization just went away. But a lot of times people in these towns had been so sucked dry by the Roman Empire that when, you know, Germanic tribes would come in, they would be like, all right, we're joining you. Like, we don't want anything to do with Rome because it grinds us into the dust and then throws us to the wind. Huh. And that's, I mean, that's what empire does. Well, do you have any... Do you have any parting shots for this podcast? Um, I think doom is a great way to end it, so. <laughs> All right. No, I don't know. Optimism, I don't know. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have anything either. Give it, yeah. A, a quick um, haiku that we can end with. No, do you? Not all haikus make sense. This one doesn't. Refrigerator. Alright. <laughs> I don't even know if that was a haiku. Alright. Well, we'll see you later. Alright, until next time. Adios.